Oh, yes, what a delightful talk we have ahead of us. If I do say so myself, I'm feeling very British. I watched a British documentary. <laughs> Splendid. So um, there's this uh, there's this belief uh, that in spiritual Buddhist practice that clinging or attachment denotes um, hoarding or or grabbing or clasping onto something, wanting to uh, hold on to one's wealth or whatever and not let it go. And that's definitely part of the the Buddhist teachings. There's a a lot of wonderful suttas with Anapapindaka where the Buddha talks about the nature of what's clinging to money and what's not and stuff like that. Um, But um, the concept of clinging is a much broader concept, a much broader idea. Um, the word in the Buddha's tongue, upadana, meant to feed, to consume something. And the Buddha said, we feed off of things for a sense of security, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose in life. We feed off of things for a sense of an advantage or something that will make us feel good. And so one of the four things we feed off on are sensual pleasures, things like uh, food that makes us feel good, sugary food, junk food, any kind of uh, food that really releases a lot of serotonin really quickly. We we often will cling and feed off of... um, uh, Binging on television or binging on um, uh, spending, you know, credit cards, binging on uh, sex, binging on... You can binge on anything that feels good. And that's just one out of the four things, but I'm not talking about that tonight. No, I'm not. Um... (laughs) I don't know what that voice is about. But. <laughs> um, then there's also clinging to habits and rituals. I have mine. You have yours. I like my iced coffee in the morning. I know it's a bit of a attachment because when I don't get my iced coffee in the morning, I'm a real pisser. When we're on retreat with the other teachers before, they don't even want to talk to me before I have my coffee. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I like to watch Breaking Bad as soon as I can. <laughs> there's always some jerk out there who's going to want to reveal something or some, I don't know, I just like to. So anyway, um, and if I can't, if I can't, uh, uh, then I, I can be a little bit ornery. So I'm not, I'm not pretending that there's no attachment to rituals, attachment to pleasures in my life. And I really, one of the things I don't like it is when 
people who give spiritual talks try to present themselves as all high and mighty. Welcome. <laughs> I'm completely at ease. You are suffering. <laughs> Um, but what I am talking tonight is about um, the other two forms of attachment, which are to our beliefs and opinions and views, and also to our sense of identity, stories, who we are. And they're really, really, as we'll see, they're very intertwined and very hard often to uh, separate. So these beliefs, these views can be things that we carry around, the shoulds, I should be this, I shouldn't do that, people should, you know, uh, give up their seats in the subway for uh, people who are old or injured, or, you know, we should, and there's beliefs we have that uh, uh, people shouldn't litter, people should be... Um, this or that. We have all these stories that we carry around. And very often there's, a, there's some validity to them. But the problem is, is that um, often with clinging we can't put them down. Even when there's no point to carry these beliefs with us when it's just going to create conflict, agitation. Um, if we can't know when it's appropriate to carry a belief and know how to release it when it's no longer uh, useful, then we're in trouble. I'll give you an example. Um, well, the, to use the Buddhist analogy first, the Buddha used uh, the analogy of a raft for the Dharma itself. He said that his life's work, the Dharma, the, the teachings, even something as profoundly wise as his Dharma, he said, was something that we had to know when it was appropriate and when it was not appropriate. Um, he used the raft metaphor that you're on a shore that's uh, unpleasant and you want to get to a distant shore that's more pleasant and you look around for leaves and branches and refuse and somehow clever people turn that into a boat. I don't have a fucking clue, but they do it and they get across the water and then that's the proper use for thoughts, to use them for a specific goal or function, but then if it's clinging, we carry around this raft with us and we use it all the time. And it's analogous to sometimes when people discover a spiritual path, uh, all of us, we can at times be a little obnoxious and start to, you know, tell people about it. <laughs> all your problems would be fine if you just started meditating or whatever, you know. We want, we want our agenda to be picked up. And that causes conflict. Um, knowing, on the other hand, even when we are pretty certain we're right, knowing when to put down a belief or a view is very important. I was at a wedding, which is, for me, the most catastrophic place to find myself. 
And uh, <laughs> <laughs> weddings are where people who are really under deep stress, who are about to hitch themselves for life to, uh, to somebody else and promise never to have sex with another human being but the, their betrothed, plan seating arrangements for tables of eights. <laughs> it's true, and they, they, they must be taking hallucinogens because they always seat me with people that, that even if you are on normal drugs, <laughs> you wouldn't find a, a, a possible reason why I'm being sat with these people. I was, I was put next to, next to, uh, next to um, people from Alabama, which is not Alabama accent. I just can't do it. But Alabama and whatever, and they immediately launched into quoting Sean Hannity and yeah and. Now, if I didn't, uh, if I didn't know how to put down, if I felt the need to immediately launch in, it would have been a very long three-hour dinner. But I just, I held my beliefs really lightly, and I just laughed and appreciated what she said, and and joked about, you know, being, you know, uh, uh, northern, you know, progressive, you know commie loving whatever that I was <laughs> and um, we got along fine but we so learning when when something is just going to create conflict and there's no possibility even though we're sure we're right there's no possibility of it accomplishing anything um, well, that's an obvious example of of knowing when there's clinging and when not to attach to views and beliefs. But tonight's talk is really about um, the sort of self-improvement regimes that we put ourselves under, the goals from uh, wanting to stop something specifically. Um, And very often we bring really harsh beliefs and to the process of trying to change or become different or um, to let go of, of behaviors that we don't like. And these views and opinions that sometimes we don't even realize that they're there, they're very clung to, but they're not even any more spoken. They're so deeply ingrained. And... Um, so, for example, some of the ones I came up with is um, uh, I, I work with a lot of people one-on-one trying to uh, help them unpack the way they've developed their self-improvement strategies. One of the ways that happens uh, is uh, people who, who drink more than they want, who eat in a, a sort of mood-altering way or, you know, a sort of a mood-regulating way or people who um, uh, watch porn addictively or whatever it is, is there's this tendency to um, have the behavior and then the agenda is to add a sense of that's morally wrong 
and then to add a sense of, and that's where the beliefs are that we're feeding off of, and then to add a sense of, there's something wrong with me, there's the identity belief. And then what happens is when we say something we do is morally wrong and there's something wrong with me, we create, and I don't know why I'm doing it this way, (laughs) and besides it's probably backwards for you, I should be doing anyway, (laughs) whatever this is. So uh, then there's stress. And then what happens is the stress makes us want to go back and do the thing that we were trying to change. So let's look at examples. <laughs> procrastination. Well, what happens with procrastination? We start out with uh, we have to write something. We have to write a paper. We have to write uh, uh, something for some, someone. And then So there's first this uh, little belief that goes into it, uh, the perfectionist belief or the fear of not getting it done and how horrible that will be. And that creates stress, which creates a little procrastination. Then when we don't do it and we wait until the last moment of uh, when we can possibly get a project done, then we add a sense of shame. Why did I do that again? Why did I wait to the last moment? This is so stupid. If only I had started this thing two weeks ago, two months ago, if only I hadn't put off doing this for so long, now look at me, I'm fucked. And then you see the beliefs are beginning to turn into personality view. I'm fucked, I suck, what's the matter with me? I'll never change, I'm, I'm like this. This is horrible, I'm stuck. And so from that, there's stress. There's a sense of everything's wrong. And then we associate stress with actually writing. And we avoid it more. We procrastinate more. So it creates a vicious circle. Or another example of people who drink. And then the next day there's the uh, felt shame, which is okay in and of itself. But then we add all the stories of that's morally wrong. How, you know, how could I? I wanted to stop. What's the matter with me? And then, on top of that, then all the self-beliefs of I'm stuck, my drinking is worse, my procrastination is worse, my (coughs) binge eating is worse, my shopping is worse, I've got it really bad. And that's the most powerful of them. One of the things that I notice when I work with people is that the clinging to the sense that their problem is uniquely bad. Now, if you only knew how, you know, how often I'm on the internet, if only you knew (laughs) how stupid the things I buy compulsively are, if only you knew what I'm binging on, if only you knew how bad my procrastination, if only you knew, you would never like me again. (laughs) So it creates this real sense of of isolation, specialness, nobody can understand. I've got something I've got to conceal because it's so ugly. And that creates stress. And then what do we do? We drink more. We shop more. We watch more porn. Whatever it is, we go directly back to that habit which releases the stress. And so it creates, again, this vicious ingrained feedback loop. 
And the problem is very often when we want to unpack this entire system of suffering, we go to the hardest place. We don't go to uh, the beliefs. We go to the ingrained behaviors that have been in our lives for decades. And then we try to white-knuckle it. This time I'm not going to I'm going to hide all the food in the pantry and I'm not going to be able to find it. And when I want to, when I want to eat, I'm going to... I'm going to... And so, instead of directing our efforts at the, uh, at the weakest link in the chain, which is the stories, and I'll tell, us, I'll tell you how we can unpack them really quickly and dismantle them. We go for the things that are the longest habitually ingrained, the things that we've had in place the longest. Very often, too, there's nothing really morally wrong with a lot of this stuff. I've worked with people who really turn a little procrastination into just, it means they're the worst human being ever. Sexual desire... Anything people can turn into this sense of real moral wrong and then they just bombard themselves with, what is the fucking matter with me? How could I be this way? So, in Buddhist practice, there's a very big difference between um, aspiration to change and craving and attachment and clinging to beliefs and craving and demanding that we change. In the canon, there's a word chanda, which means to want something that's spiritual, to want to move towards a more spiritual place in life. Then there's also the word tanha, which means this craving appetite, and this, uh, and then that turns into all the other. Uh, things that cause stress and suffering, the, the identity beliefs, sakaya ditti and stuff like that. So how do we know the difference between an aspiration for and a healthy way to go about change and something that's going to set us up for suffering and needless guilt and needless shame and needless self-beating ourselves up? Well, um, Aspiration always rewards us for our effort. It's always based on the carrot. I think you know where I'm going with this. Uh, attachment, craving, always has this energy behind it that everything's fucked unless I do this. There's something totally fucking wrong. How dare I... So it's, the energy is based entirely on fear and shaming. So when we move from, oh, it would be nice to have a daily meditation practice that would bring about ease in my life, to what the fuck is the matter with me? Why can't I do this? Every time I try, my mind wanders, and then the next thing I know, I'm on the internet shopping on ASOS <laughs> or something I don't need. <laughs> So the aspiration rewards us for the two minutes that we sat. 
And it refuses to add the stress of judgment, wrongness. And this is where Buddhists lack of there being some omniscient God is very helpful. In other spiritual paths, if you fall short, it means you're doing something immoral in the eyes of God, you're falling short. The Buddha said all of his uh, morality system was simply based on trying to develop ease in life, but was not based on this big God in the sky that would damn us if we fell short. So there's, immediately in this spiritual path, we're trying to remove that sense that there's something terribly wrong if I fall short, that I'm falling away from the natural order, that I'm not living up to what human beings should, that, that I'm completely, uh, I'm completely, you know, uh, there's something wrong here. Um, aspiration does not demand fixed results or huge leaps in progress. On the other hand, attachment is almost never satisfied. That demanding, craving energy, that inner tyrant, I'll call it, that demands that we change, it's never satisfied. No matter how much you do, it's never good enough. If you actually do write a paragraph, well, why didn't I write a page today? If you write a page, why didn't I write two pages? If you wrote the entire fucking article in one minute, it'd be... Well, it sucks. If you wrote it, it was good. It's not the greatest thing ever written. If it's the greatest thing ever written, it's not changing the world. There's still people who are not reading it. Why don't I get love from everyone? It's not ever going to be. You feed the tyrant, it's never satisfied. As the Buddha said, um, the world uh, is not enough to feed our craving. No matter how much we feed it, no matter how much we try to self-improve, if we're doing it under the whip of the inner tyrant rather than the caring, uh, self-loving voice, that inner tyrant will never be satisfied. You'll never, ever get that voice to say, yeah, I love you. That's not, it's, that's, it doesn't do that. <laughs> so, uh, obviously, aspiration doesn't add the sense of uniqueness, identity, there's something wrong with me, my, 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 you know, my drug abuse is worse, my drinking is worse, my shopping is worse, my, even if you're really sure that you have a problem, the need to add something special or unique is almost invariably a distortion. It's almost invariably just going to lead to a sense of isolation. It's almost invariably going to make you feel more stuck and shamed to the behavior than have a sense of possibility of change and liberation from it. On the other hand, the inner tyrant is never, ever, ever short of telling you why there's something wrong with you, why you've fallen short, why your problem is worse than everybody else's. And so the inner tyrant basically creates 
more and more stress, which keeps the cycle going. And at times, uh, you even believe it's like one of those, uh, that it really doesn't want us to change. It really doesn't want us to change. It simply wants everything to stay the same. And its agenda of doing that is to create such a harsh method that it actually, in its own way, knows that we'll never, ever, ever, ever bother. One of my favorite examples with my mom, who's a generally loving woman, but sometimes when uh, she would forget things and she might forget, you know, a birthday or something, and you'd say, Mom, I, you, you forgot my birthday, and she would go, I guess you're saying I'm the worst mother ever. <laughs> I'm horrible. I'm horrible. I'm the worst mother ever. How could I do that? Me who slaves and works so that you could have, you know. But the whole process was just to show, and then it, there was no agenda, and just simply saying, oh, I'm sorry. And then, I mean, I, wonderful woman, uh, absolutely lovely. But that was, you know, sometimes we have these agendas of beating ourselves up, shaming, going into the guilt of uh, stories, just because we know the more we pile it on, all we're going to wind up doing is sneaking back into the pantry for the, you know, uh, the whatever, you know, reaching for the bottle, secretly going on the internet, and you i got to buy something now. You know, i got to find a sale. <laughs> so, yes, there is a role in Buddhist practice for a sense of guilt, but it's never a story, it's always a physical energy. So the Buddha, never, when he talks about, um, oh God, what's the word? I can't remember the Pali word, but it doesn't matter. There's a, I'll remember it. Anyway, but it means just feeling uncomfortable with an action. That's fine. We lie, we fall short, we use harsh speech, we do something that we really regret. Good, there's a sense of shame in the body, a discomfort, we acknowledge it even. But the role of shaming is never to be found in the Buddha's teachings. He, when he talked to his son, he simply, he's caught his son in a famous sutta, in a lie, and he simply says to his son, if you proceed in this path, you won't be able to develop ease in life. He doesn't say you're a horrible person, there's something wrong with you, how dare you, what's the fucking matter with you. He simply says, if you follow this path, you can't develop peace of mind. This is not what leads to it. And he simply says, just find somebody that you, you know, when you've lied, and acknowledge it and feel the, um, the discomfort, but don't turn it into a story. And when we do want to attack this feedback loop, Rather than trying to change that ingrained behavior, just go first for the identity beliefs. Always unpack that first. See why that voice that's telling us there's something so terribly wrong with us, why is that voice so compelling? Why do we believe it? Because if somebody else came up to us in our life, outside in the world, and said, Hey, stupid. Yeah, you. <laughs> Instead of paying your bills, you got stressed and you bought 
Another hoodie? What's the fucking matter with you? Stupid, stupid, stupid. Fuck, fucking moron. Worst person ever. What's the fucking problem? Would you stick around with that person? Would you think that person's going to help you? Of course you wouldn't. But it's when in your head, you're like, hey, stupid. Yeah, you. And it doesn't really look like my hand, but I'm just... <laughs> You know, I had a, a voice in my head. I, I've said this before that the first thing in the morning would would say, I wake up, I look in the mirror, and be like, "Yep, you're growing bald. You're getting bald, bald, baldy, baldy, baldy." And that, that's going to help. Yeah, I, you're right. I'm not putting enough effort into growing hair. <laughs> Thank you for that. But um, so uh, so notice the voice that's really picking on you. That's really saying there's something special. There's something wrong. That there, that you are separate, that there's something monstrous or dark inside, and really begin to find how that's working on you physically. There's all this tension to it that drives us back up into the head because we make ourselves so physically uncomfortable that we, our awareness goes back up into the head and then we're stuck with the voice again. Schmuck. Yeah, you. And then we're like, oh my God. And so we're fighting a battle on all these different fronts. The body's tense, the breath's, you know, hyperventilating or shallow. The voice is yelling at us. So we go down, find the stress in the body, relax. Relax what it can. Lengthen the breath. Always go to the body first. Always relax it. And then, from the perspective of the body, just notice this voice like you're observing somebody who's coming to a party. And... You're like, oh, do I want to get involved with that person? And you listen to what he's saying to other people. And he's a know-it-all. That voice is a know-it-all. It's a tyrannical know-it-all. Listen, you don't know what's going on. I know what's going on here. I've got it under control. Just listen to me. Fuck what everybody else says. Just listen to me. And you're like, oh, I don't want to get involved with that voice. But if we're right up next to it and we're inside of the voice, it becomes us. If we're, however, relaxing the body, we're pulling the mind away from it, we're keeping ourselves anchored, we can often just ask ourselves, wow, what this is telling me? Is this something that I really want to get involved with? Do I really want to empower this voice? Then we begin to have a a healthy suspicion. The more we share what that voice is saying and externalizing it, the more we get a little bit of distance, a little sense that maybe it's not as compelling. The more we give it an outlet and we write it out, everything it's saying, the, how much I suck and how there's something wrong with me, and then we go back and read that stuff, then we can see, wow, that's a crazy person. That's a tyrant in my head. I don't want to believe that. So all of these processes help us attack the thing. So in short, know, the, the key to this talk is knowing the difference between aspiration and gentle self-motivation and the inner tyrant. The voice that cares about you rewards rather than scolds. It doesn't add stories or huge identity beliefs. It doesn't add a story of there's something terribly wrong. It actually is satisfied with any incremental effort we put in. The voice of the inner tyrant is always 
adding identity, belief, story about who we are, how we're worse, how we're different, and it's always scolding, it's always adding shaming, and nothing is ever enough for it. It adds more stress to our lives. So I hope there was something of value in there. I thank you for listening. And now uh, I'm going to turn off the tape. <laughs>